Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Alright, and we are live. Welcome, welcome, history friends, delegates, all to episode 5 of the Delegation Game. My, my, you have all been so very busy over the last week. I asked you guys to make me a League of Nations, 
And you did that as well as so much more. In fact, I think this is actually the busiest week you guys have ever created. You made so many proposals, you did so much negotiation and scheming and all that stuff. Some stuff I probably didn't even notice. You've been very, very busy indeed. And everyone displayed a refreshing level of civility and professionalism throughout the course of the negotiations. Well, except for Dinglebrush, of course, but we can't always be lucky. We can't win every time, but you guys did do a lot of winning. A lot of proposals were passed, successful dice rolls and everything else, which is very, very nice. Sorry the episode is so late in the day, although even though I'm releasing this at 10pm my time, I understand that because of this weird thing called time zones, some of you guys are getting it at a quite reasonable hour. So maybe I'll release it at 10pm GMT anyway in the future, just because pretending that... I can actually guarantee to deliver it at noon, GMT, which was the original plan, isn't always feasible. In any case, as you can see, it's a massive episode today, so let's get into some housekeeping before we actually launch it, because housekeeping is fun. We will be shaping our episode around the developments that happened in the last week, and there's a large amount of them. Six treaties in total have been passed, but two of these have issues attached to them, so we'll actually only be talking about four things that happened, really. Those two things are mostly to do with the Polish border with Russia and the Polish border with Germany. We'll be talking about the Polish border with Germany in this episode a little bit. There's some confusion over which treaties have passed, and there's also some confusion in the treaties that did pass over certain issues, such as the Tsarland. We'll get through all that, if you guys would like to help out. Perhaps let's be a little bit clearer what is passing or what isn't. I'm also going to do myself a favour and rather than ask you guys, hey, what passed this week? On the Friday afternoon when I'm about to start writing this episode, I'm going to ask you on the Thursday night before so that I can actually be a bit prepared this time, which will be very nice for everyone. Our story has been shaped massively by these treaties which have passed and if you stick around to find out what the weekly challenge vote is at the end, you'll see that we've got an even bigger change on the way, potentially. Not sure if it's as big as the Germans being accredited, because yes, by the way, in case you weren't aware, they won that vote, so the Germans are going to be sitting alongside the big three or big four, whatever Victoria Orlando wants to pretend they were called, they're going to be sitting alongside them and who knows what impact this might have. It's perhaps just as well you've done so much over the last week because as a reminder I should reiterate that there will be no Delegation Game episode next Friday. We'll be returning for episode 6 on the 2nd of March instead. So what's in the box today? Well, first things first, we should meet our newest delegate coming all the way from South Africa, a Mr. Louis Botha, whose name I'm hopefully pronouncing correctly. Correct me, Mr. Louis Botha, if I'm doing that wrong. Louis loves all things South Africa, he wants everything German, Southwest Africa, and he wishes to further the union of South Africa to the extent that his country becomes the dominant power on that continent. If you weren't aware, we can get a fairly accurate feel for Mr. Louis Botha's life, because he existed in real life. He was the first premier of a post-war South Africa, that is, post-Boer War South Africa, he was the first Premier of the Union of South Africa as well. He was pretty much the Prime Minister from about 1905 onwards, and he died in 1919, so eh, manipulating history a little bit, but it's okay. I mean, Roosevelt is still alive, so Louis Botha can do what he damn well pleases. I would like to welcome Mr. Louis Botha to the Hotel Zachary, and I trust he will be well treated. In other news, the Newfoundland delegate, Arthur McAlville, has been sent for, and has been forced to send a replacement, a mustachioed businessman by the name of William Coker. Coker is holding down the fort while McAlville gets a slap on the wrists, but he has the potential to make a difference, as he is a trade union man through and through, an advocate for the working class, 
and unwilling to engage in the kind of delicate backroom diplomacy which McCallville had done very well in. I hope those at the Hotel Zachary will not feel prejudiced at the sudden absence of the delegate McCallville, whom many were certainly fond of, and I hope they will eagerly welcome Mr. Coker, even if he does kind of smell like fish. The really big news for this episode is actually three bits of big news. First of all, the delegates made the decision during the week to pass, just about, it only passed by one vote, the resolution which allowed for the accrediting of the German delegation, which raises the two Germans on the ground, that is, Paul von Leto Vorbeck and Horten von Hotzendorf, to the same status as those delegates who sat in for the big three. Now that Germany has a seat on the great power table, if it helps, think of France at the time of the Congress of Vienna after the Napoleonic Wars, and think of what Talleyrand was able to achieve. Will Horten von Hotzendorf and Paul von Leto Vorbeck have the same success? We'll have to wait and see. History has been changed. Historically, Germany wasn't invited to Paris until late April, and even then the Germans had no say over how things would proceed, so we're really taking a different path here, which is great to see, because we're all about changing history, making an alternative version of history that you guys are interacting and changing and shaping yourselves. So that's good. For our second point, we see history repeat itself somewhat, as the remarkably punitive Western Front Peace Treaty has also been passed, with significant intervention from the French and the Belgians. This treaty essentially gives Belgium and France all that they wanted, including Luxembourg for a while, and the Rhineland, the Tsar, and vast reparations for France. Germany is not going to like this, and now that she has representation among the big three, we can expect German activism in Paris to reach the next level. Bear in mind, of course, guys, that all of these developments are going to have consequences. Will the systematic reduction of Germany's military and industrial capacity as per the Western Front Peace Treaty, will that have the effect of preventing World War II? Or are the Germans going to become still more hurt and resentful than before, owing to the harsh nature of the treaty's terms? That remains to be seen. For our third point, we can note a justified flash of optimism, as the Charter of the League of Nations is successfully passed following a fortnight of intensive deliberations sort of like the way that it happened in real life, believe it or not. On the same day as Woodrow Wilson delivered his real-life League of Nations covenant, here our delegates deliver their alternative charter, which holds as one of its most striking articles the clause that King Albert of Belgium should open the plenary conference meeting, which at this point was discussing the League. This is where all delegates of all walks of life will be invited. Woodrow Wilson would not be at all pleased to see that he'd been evicted from having such a central role, so the consequences of that will have to be addressed as well, even though Woodrow Wilson is just about to head home to the United States. In the process of reaching this episode, it was discovered that several treaties which had been passed contained contentious articles, so rather than faff about any longer with them, and since our episode here is clogged enough already, I said that I'd leave them till episode 6 in two weeks' time. So if you're wondering why your treaty on Eastern European borders hasn't been covered here properly, that's why. That said, as I did say at the beginning, we will be addressing the German-Polish border treaty, at least in a bit of detail, but all that stuff about the Russo-Polish border, well, first of all, confuses me because Mr. Kerensky's making an awful big mess, but second of all, I'm not exactly sure that everyone even agrees to it, so we'll have to wait and see what happens there. As I said, the episode's long enough already, so I don't think you're really going to miss it. Remember to stick around till the end of the episode to find out what you have to vote on this week. And thanks again to all you delegates who participated so well and made such great progress. Just so you know, today's been a very, very busy day. I've finished a 32-page script. 
I made dinner, I went for a run, and yeah, then I also finished writing this episode, and it was a very busy day, and it makes all the difference when I know you guys are really looking forward to this, and you're just really looking forward to what I'm producing. It's such a great feeling as a creator to know that the stuff you make is being looked forward to. It's a really great feeling, so thanks so much for feeling that way, and I hope that this episode does your sense of anticipation justice. Alright, let's not waste any more time or get too emotional here. Sob, sob, and let's get right into this. I want to take you all to a very special alternative gathering, the first ever gathering of the League of Nations Assembly on the afternoon of the 14th of February, 1919. This was a very different plenary conference meeting to one we've seen before, if you've listened to the episode that came out on the 14th of February, so I hope you're ready for this. King Albert of Belgium cut a striking figure. A representative of plucky little Belgium's tenacious resistance, while 90% of the country was under German occupation, King Albert had more reasons than most for wanting to see Germany laid low and have Belgium reap the rewards. Yet, it was said, Albert was not here for the sake of vengeance. He was here to accept the honours bestowed upon him by the assembled nations of the world. As the sacrifices of Belgium were recognised, before an unprecedented Congress of Nations. The League of Nations was complete, its covenant written up in 12 articles, in addition to a military annex, which promised peace for all time and a new method of solving international disputes. King Albert had himself delivered a largely unremarkable speech before sitting down at the head of the long table in the Quai d'Orsay, where the other delegates of the world were also seated. Albert wasn't sure exactly of how the League would be run. The details about its mechanisms and procedures confused and bored him somewhat. He was far more interested in what Belgium could get out of the League and of finding some way to gain a mandate for Belgium over portions of Central Africa, even while the mandate system, he'd been told, had been thoroughly discredited. Albert scanned the room and he believed he could see the Germans seated somewhere near the back. Those rascals, Albert fumed, had somehow managed to gain seats at the Council of Ten, and Belgium had not? What injustice was this? How had that German war criminal Paul von Leto Vorbeck or his oafish partner Horten von Hotzendorf managed to acquire accreditation along with the Big Three? Did this mean that the plans which had already been made would be subject to change? Albert felt himself scowling down at the assembled delegates, He knew this was bad form, so he tried to focus on something else which had been the subject of a great deal of discussion and rumour, the American delegation. Assembled was the cream of America's delegation crop, but conspicuous in their absence were the American president and Edward House, both of whom had elected to remain in their apartments out of disgust once Albert had been named General Secretary. Teddy Roosevelt, to the surprise of no one, had rushed to fill the gap left behind, and now Teddy smirked indulgently around the room, keenly aware that he had gained one up on his great rival. In the previous days since the League Charter had been passed, House had worked as something of an intermediary, and in the process he had learned much when swapping between the two different American delegations. 
Roosevelt was absolutely convinced that with his personal backing and with Wilson's absence, the League of Nations would be far less controversial and contentious when it came time to present it in Congress, which was, of course, filled with Republicans. Bruce Pug was arguably the MVP of the American delegation, and certainly the author of the most proposals, and he said he would lend his support to the Charter, which meant that Cameraheads were more likely to prevail once Wilson presented that scheme back home. It did, of course, mean that Wilson would not be indelibly associated with the creation of the League, and his friends were working overtime to make him see the positives of this disappointment. William Randolph Hearst, that bullish newspaper billionaire magnate, had had much to say about Wilson's shortcomings and temperament, but even he had to admit that a great deal of the partisan instincts of Congress would be nullified if the League were presented as a scheme of the great Roosevelt's brain. Whether this was true or not, after all, Roosevelt had long abhorred the whole League idea, he had come around in recent days himself, once he had consulted with Joseph Zahn and Walter Cameron in particular, two astute, articulate and sincere men who could be relied upon. It was as though those two men, Zahn and Cameron, were acting in Wilson's name, but they acted without Wilson's most abrasive qualities. Roosevelt couldn't help but be won over as the more neutral Bruce Pug helped work the final details out with him. William Randolph Hearst promised, after some consultation with Teddy, to work his own magic back home, preparing what he called a publicity blanket for President Roosevelt to ensure that the Charter of the League of Nations received the blessing from at least his organs of the media that he controlled, which it deserved. Hearst, it was said, had felt passionately enough about the idea to enlist the aid of Oliver Flanagan, who had considerable international as well as industrial contacts. Flanagan, initially opposed to the scheme as Wilson had conceived it, became much more open to the League idea once that president had removed himself from the equation, and the same was said to be true in many theatres of American politics. With Wilson removed from the process, however reluctantly or temporarily this may have been, and the wounded leader of Belgium standing at the helm of the organisation, it seemed only logical and just for America to commit to protect plucky little Belgium once more. Flanagan had been put in a great mood at the same time by the passage of the Romanian banking deal, which committed the United States to invest heavily in Romania's national bank in exchange for free trade and direct investment. This deal, Roosevelt had argued, would provide Washington with a useful lever in the Balkans from which she could strike or defend. It would not do to allow that troubled spot of Europe to flare up again, and here was an excellent way to guard against another conflagration spark. After several weeks of dithering, then, it seemed Roosevelt had managed to gather his delegates under his wing and to find common ground on projects like the League, which Wilson's leadership had originally made so unpalatable. If indeed matters were set to change, and if Germans were due to start appearing in the Council of Ten, then perhaps, Roosevelt mused, but mostly just to himself, it was time for a changing of the guard as far as American representation in that council was concerned. Now was an ideal opportunity to usurp the President's position in the Council of Ten and claw back some powers and influence for the Republican Party in Paris. The profound insult which Wilson had inflicted by refusing to invite any significant such party members to join him on the five-man American delegation in Paris 
spoke volumes about Wilson's way of doing business. However, now that Roosevelt had been given this platform of representation for America in the League of Nations Assembly for the next month at the very least, it was easy to imagine that the old American delegation would be replaced with this newer, more accomplished, more energetic and more agreeable delegation. That at least was Roosevelt's aim, but he would have to pick his spot, his moment, his opportunity for usurping Wilson's position very carefully. King Albert was doing his best to appear interested. The French candidate, Léon Bourgeois, had bored everyone to tears, as had been expected. But when a tall, Middle Eastern prince had stood up to speak, whispers and gasps around the room ensured he would command the attention of those that were present. Nobody knew quite what to expect, but when Prince Navoir Sharif opened his mouth to speak and both English and French poured forth effortlessly with an accent that was smooth and sweet as honey, Albert found himself momentarily captivated. He did have to remind himself several times that his own position was not to be taken lightly and that it was a great opportunity for Belgium's image, yet now he found himself marvelling and also recoiling in fear at the sheer wealth of tasks before those assembled. This League of Nations, this incredible project as it was, could it really fix the world? Could Albert as King of the Belgians really ensure that Belgium would never again be faced with such a harrowing trauma, and what would it take to achieve this end? Prince Sharif seemed to desire some form of land concession. Just the majority of the Arabian Peninsula, he said. This peninsula would be safer if free from Turkish domination and Western influence, and in return, the Arabian Peninsula and Arabs themselves would open up to Western and European trade. In his speech, Sharif repeatedly emphasised the importance of meeting Arabs where they were and treating them as equal partners. The Arabian people, said Sharif, had great potential and regardless of religion or creed, he wanted to draw attention to the fact that free Arabs everywhere would rejoice and never forget the opportunity granted to them by the West, which had liberated them from the terrible Turk. Albert found himself scoffing at the Arabian prince. Just what did the Arabs know about self-rule? If Lloyd George hadn't gone and misfired the whole mandates idea, then it would not have been impossible to imagine Arabia falling under the control of some benign mandate, perhaps the British and French together, maybe aided by Belgium. Now though, with mandates so discredited and blackened, it was likely that Sharifi Arabia would be granted independence, only to collapse, presumably, due to inexperience and mismanagement. Albert made a mental note not to invest in any Arabian schemes for the foreseeable future. King Albert then looked to his right, and he felt his stomach lurch. What was the bumbling fool Generous Dinglebrush doing? Was he about to make a speech of his own? King Albert found himself feeling suddenly very small indeed. He should never have sent Pauli Mons back to Brussels. It was now that he needed him more than ever. It was too late, though. Dinglebrush was standing up, paper in hand, wearing one of the brightest waistcoats anyone had ever seen. Albert could see people in the room attempting to hide their laughter. This was akin to humiliation, and it was an own goal for Belgium of the worst sort. How had this fool managed to reach Paris? Who would approve of his travel and of his mission? Albert believed he could spot bits of food in Dinglebrush's beard. Gross. Rumour had it that a recent stomach upset had occasioned an embarrassing attack of flatulence, as if Dinglebrush needed to be the butt of any more jokes. 
Yet the man was evidently determined to make some kind of point. It wasn't that Dinglebrush was necessarily wrong, or even that his words had no force. Albert could even feel himself nodding at certain points of Dinglebrush's speech. It was more the fact... Well, it was more the way that the man carried himself, just generally. Three times, while making a hand gesture and in a flurry of emotion, Dinglebrush somehow managed to hurl his papers across the room. By the third time this happened, ripples of laughter could be heard. And when Dinglebrush took that occasion to break wind, these giggles caused the room to nearly erupt with laughter, all of which stopped abruptly once the delegates glanced at King Albert's sullen expression. I rest my case, Dinglebrush exclaimed before sitting down with a thud. Did Albert feel a sense of pity for the man? No, Albert thought, just frustration and embarrassment. If Dinglebrush couldn't carry himself like a proper statesman, then he had no business being here. A word from Hungary was given next, as a minor delegate reported on Lady Eleonora Chalk's progress. Ah, Albert heard a whisper from behind him. The Black Widow is on the move. What a deplorable nickname for such an unfortunate woman who watched her own president murdered before her very eyes. Reportedly, Lady Chalk was a tough widower who was actively working to establish some kind of transitional post-war regime for this new Hungary. The minor Hungarian delegate presenting this case announced that Lady Nora would be returning to Paris soon and that the situation in Hungary remained stable largely thanks to Western arms, which the freedom-loving people of Hungary greatly appreciated. Lady Nora had communicated her sincere belief that the West would soon identify with this exciting new chapter in Hungary's national life cycle. With the Bolsheviks held back and the nationalist Magyars, the more extreme ones at least, also stunted, Lady Nora seemed to indicate that a Republican centrist government would soon be at hand. King Albert then interjected to declare his sincere hopes for a safe and secure Hungary and insisted that Lady Nora hear of the eagerness of all assembled to welcome her to the League of Nations Assembly, where she would be welcome to sit as well. It was now time for a break, so King Albert made his way to the now famous Hotel Zachary, where he planned to indulge in the latest fine dining, hopefully without that impossible fool Dinglebrush following him. A few speeches remained to be said, as the minor powers were all eager for a chance to speak. Now that Belgium was chairing this first true gathering of the League, its king was determined to protect the rights of small nations, as King Albert had been told that Polymons had been something of a de facto leader of the small nations in the previous weeks. Albert needed some air, especially when he glanced again at the agenda and saw that the Italians were next up to speak. He could already imagine Vittorio Orlando's interminable lamentations especially since the creation of the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement and the emergence of a Polish-Italian plot to seize the initiative in the East had soured relations between the delegates somewhat. Albert wasn't quite sure what to think about the whole IFTA scheme. On the one hand, it would reduce Western influence, but then again, perhaps a strong, united hand in the Eastern region was all those peoples would ever really understand. The journey to the Hotel Zachary was full of bustle and urgency, which seemed to grip all other candidates on the impromptu break. Everyone was rushing to get somewhere or be somewhere else, anywhere other than that stuffy big room in the Quai d'Orsay. He felt he could still hear the city laughing at poor Dinglebrush. Poor Dinglebrush? Hold on a minute, was he going soft on him? 
Walking through the double doors of the Hotel Zachary, which a porter, kitted out with luxurious white gloves, had held open for him, Albert glided into the lobby, to be met with a sight that he had least expected. In the centre of the lobby, apparently in the midst of an impromptu meeting which had begun by chance, as all the men involved were standing and talking loudly, was the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, flanked by his two delegates, Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam and Alistair Tankred. Oh, oh boy, Albert knew those two men, those infamous jokesters of the British delegation. But their talent could not be ignored. They were joined by an Australian by the name of David McKay, who Albert wasn't too familiar with, and of course the poor Premier of Canada, Sir Robert Borden. There was also another man, the stand-in delegate for Newfoundland, William Coker, who didn't smell particularly wonderful. Sir Robert Borden was still visibly shaken after the harrowing experience of losing his friend the previous fortnight, while William Coker seemed feverishly interested, from what Albert heard in any case, of what labour regulations Lloyd George had planned to introduce within a few months, now that the war was over. Before he had actually journeyed to the Hotel Zachary, King Albert had been sure to get some kind of guarantee that there would be no Poles coming into the Hotel Zachary, and that he would certainly be saved the kind of terrible experience which had rocked the Hotel Twomley to its core. But most of Paris was still on guard, and of course the Hotel Zachary had absorbed all of the delegates that had once stayed in the Hotel Twomley. Well, everyone that is, except for the Poles themselves. Standing next to these men was a sixth, whom Albert recognised as a leading politician of South Africa, Mr Louis Botha. Botha could a confident, suave figure, and he had a presence which King Albert could not ignore. Perhaps Botha himself could have been a prince from a bygone age. He was certainly a prince of style, of self-image, and of South African politics on the grand scale as well as on the gritty. A smart suit looked like it had been assembled and sewn together while Botha had been walking. It was a perfect fit, and made the man appear much more supple and youthful than his 55 years might have suggested. Both his charm and personable nature were undeniable. It was no wonder the man had been Prime Minister of South Africa since virtually the end of the Boer War. Louis Botha had come a long way to be in Paris, and he left his beloved South Africa at a very important moment in that country's life cycle. Evidently, Botha believed he could gain more from the power brokers in person than back in Johannesburg, but what did he want exactly? King Albert realised that he had been staring at the seven men, who all immediately bowed and tipped their hats in respect. "'Your Majesty,' Lloyd George began, "'it is splendid to see you here. Have you been in the Hotel Zachary long?' "'Mr. Lloyd George,' King Albert smiled, clasping the Prime Minister's hand. "'I am merely enjoying a short break from the festivities in the League of Nations Assembly. I regret that I did not see you gentlemen there.' It hadn't quite meant to come out like that, but Albert instantly regretted the semi-question. Unfortunately, Your Majesty, Tancred began, in such a way that seemed to command respect and demonstrate experience, Britain and its dominions have been very busy today in building up support for the League of Nations behind the scenes, and thus we have not had time to take part, but rest assured, my Prime Minister and myself will be eager to take part soon enough. Before Albert could respond, Mr. Louis Botha interjected and took the king's hand. "'Your Majesty,' Botha said, in a heavily accented but still comfortable voice, 
I understand Belgium had extensive plans for the centre of Africa. It is my hope that together you and I can help make this land of savages safe for civilization and for the sacred work of God. Mr Lloyd George has fantastic plans to extend the empire's writ from north to south and it would be my honour to see the Belgian flag raised in between. This was very formal behaviour for a statesman but somehow King Albert felt determined to let Botha away with it. A raspy voice then spoke up on Albert's left-hand side. Canadians enthusiastically support the League, but we were too preoccupied today with complex matters outside of our own control. That was Sir Robert Borden, the Canadian Premier, and he certainly sounded like a man who had been through the ringer. Albert wanted to find the best way to persuade these men to return with him to the Quai d'Orsay, That way he would be able to demonstrate his own importance and grant an additional sense of legitimacy to the League proceedings. This begged the question, what had been so important that Lloyd George and his subordinates had felt too preoccupied to attend? Albert believed that he did not need to ask the question, as he could sense David McKay, the Australian delegate, preparing an explanation while the others chatted. Perhaps David McKay had been given the short straw, or perhaps Mr McKay could not help himself. It did at least seem like good news, judging by McKay's expression. Your Majesty, we have spent much of the day conversing with the American President regarding the creation of the Covenant of the League of Nations. It is our hope that if President Wilson can be brought on side, then the League will be guaranteed to succeed. We knew that once Your Majesty was selected to chair the first meeting, President Wilson would be deeply vexed, and we wished to communicate to him his importance for the overall project and to emphasise how deeply we desire him to remain with us in perfecting this infant iteration of the League. It suddenly occurred to Albert that an opportunity might have presented itself. Why shouldn't he make a personal appeal to Mr Wilson, from monarch to president, to demonstrate that no hard feelings existed? Perhaps if Albert presented himself as an innocent man, completely undesiring of the role and the influence which had been bestowed upon him, but at the same time eager to achieve for the world this peace project which would surely render conflict impossible, then President Wilson would come around, hurt feelings or not, and he might even attend. He would have to be quick though. Albert indicated his urgency to Lloyd George, who nodded and, walking briskly with his entourage behind him, gestured for the nearest cab. My driver was not due to pick me up for another hour, Lloyd George said, but I believe this is important enough to do now. Lloyd George then turned to the two British, the Canadian, the Newfoundlander, the Australian and the South African behind him. They were like a family of dominions from an empire which perfectly represented the nature of Britain's resplendent power, even following this ruinous war. Albert couldn't help but be impressed by this entourage. Lloyd George requested that these men hold the fort and stay behind in the Hotel Zachary for the moment. At that, Tankred and Fitzwilliam strolled towards the bar. That the British had been working behind the scenes to persuade Woodrow Wilson to agree to this new charter of the League of Nations without his direct involvement convinced King Albert that the moment was a serious one indeed. The President was going to return home to the States in only a few hours, so it was imperative that King Albert hurry and meet with President Wilson before it was too late. President Wilson was surprisingly affectionate and warm, considering his reputation, and Albert believed that Wilson had absorbed much of the points which he made in person. 
It was time, Albert said, to accept that not all treaties worked out for the benefit of man's reputation, but here they certainly worked out for the benefit of man. This point seemed to strike a chord with Wilson, who was visibly moved by Albert's impassioned pleas to save Belgium from further strife and support the quest for peace. It all seemed to be going so well that Albert was even tempted to try a bit harder, to go a bit further, and to beg Wilson to make amends with Roosevelt, thereby forming a kind of superpower duo from the former rivals, and making any challenge mounted by Congress easy enough to meet and to answer. King Albert knew his limits, though. He wouldn't go this far. Wilson promised to attend the conference once he returned from the United States, and he hoped that Albert would visit him in the future in the United States, for he believed that they had much in common. Wilson said that he hoped that King Albert would be the first European monarch to visit America, and Albert insisted that he would, and after shaking his hand and tipping his hat, Wilson said goodbye to his Belgian majesty. After that experience, Albert felt ready to face the Italian music. Vittorio Orlando, flanked by Bonifacio Fidel, gave a presentation on all manner of Italian subjects from her claims to portions of Slovenia and Albania, to the necessity in accepting the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement and allowing Italy to have her day in the sun. What followed was something of a blur, as the Greek premier, Venizelos, stood up to challenge Italy's unfettered dominance of the Adriatic and to needle Orlando on her possession of portions of Albania and certain Greek islands. Venizelos urged that everyone present consider the plight of Greece, and to have pity on those countless Greeks who believed the time had finally come to recognise the inestimable contributions which Greece had made to democracy and Western civilization, What better way to recognise such victories than to facilitate another, the reunification of Greece with her expatriate citizens across the Bosphorus? King Albert bit his lip at all of this posturing. Both the Italians and now the Greeks were treating this league meeting less like a break with the past than as an opportunity to announce land grabs or to denounce their foes. After this experience, Albert had to admit that he deeply enjoyed watching the Siamese delegate present his case. Prince Charun of Siam was evidently much more cultured and self-assured than the vast majority of those European delegates assembled. From one monarch to another, Albert believed he understood this Siamese prince quite well. Prince Sharoon was also far more concise and fluid in language, not pausing for a breath, it seemed, for 30 straight minutes. By this point, Albert could feel fatigue begin to set in, but he was determined to listen, for he had been given a critically important job to do. Without even really realising what he was about to do, King Albert felt himself butting in, interrupting the Siamese prince and he alluded to the reported deal which Siam had just made with Japan. This, King Albert said, in as genial a tone as he could, suggested that all of Asia was preparing to enter into the civilised concert of nations, and he asked Prince Sharoon whether he agreed, to which Prince Sharoon replied somewhat incredulously, Pardon me, your majesty, but Siam has always been civilised, ever since our first king of Sukhothai, liberated our nation from the other tie, much like Belgium wrested its sovereignty from its Dutch neighbours. Siam is, like Belgium, eager to take its place in the world among the civilised concert of nations, but I would urge His Majesty not to fall into the trap of assuming that a difference in culture or appearance 
means a reduction in civilization or capacity for greatness. Siam and its partner, Japan, look forward with some excitement to a world in which race and geography no longer has such a bearing on the estimation of one's rivals. We wish to be the force of this change throughout the world. Wow, King Albert didn't know whether to be furious or impressed, so he simply waved at the Japanese delegate, a Baron Nabuaki, to take his turn. The Japanese noble spoke in French for some 20 minutes about the strong passion Japan had for peace, and about her hopes for an organisation which would make peace among the nations of the world truly feasible and durable. In addition, Nabuaki said, the Western nations had a unique responsibility to refrain from the kind of predatory imperialistic behaviour which currently threatened Chinese independence and made the Russo-Japanese War of the previous decade also possible. Nabuaki noted that nations which cleave so closely to imperialism and predatory policies inevitably meet their doom, and that was why Russia had collapsed in on itself in previous years, Nabuaki said. King Albert listened intently. These Asian delegates were absolutely fascinating. Oh, completely bonkers and mostly irrelevant, of course, but nonetheless, what an experience to hear these proud men speak. A chain smoker stood up next. Between the puffs and underneath the cloud of smoke, Karhu Rosnak of Slovenia made his case. It was, for all intents and purposes, a fairly bleak one. Slovenia contained a measly population of barely 1.5 million, and it had been unwittingly subsumed into the greater Slav project, with Serbia leading the way. The Serbs claimed that Slovenes were eager to participate in the partnership, but they had said the same about Montenegro, and that turned out to be an abject lie from Belgrade. Albert certainly empathised with Rosnak, and as a small nation, Rosnak's cause was meant to represent the heart of what the League was all about. Rosnak pleaded for protection, but could the League offer this service, or would it be overburdened by the weight of interests leading it forward? Rosnak was frequently overcome by bouts of extended coughing, followed by laboured apologies, followed by several minutes of impassioned speaking, followed by coughing, and the cycle began again. Albert made a mental note to drop by and speak with Rosnak at some point. From the monarch of one small nation to the leader of another, perhaps Belgium could offer some assistance to Karhu Rosnak's beleaguered nation. Rosnak was spared one difficult encounter, since it was known that Nikola Pesic, the Serbian premier, had decided to boycott the whole league institution, owing to its provision of a platform to nations which, Pesic claimed, already had a voice under the Serbian banner. Neither Rosnak nor the King of Montenegro who spoke after him could provide any ratification of this claim, and Albert became quite convinced that the Serbians, who were once the great victims of imperialism, had now absorbed the role of their old Habsburg nemesis, and that they would fall into the same abyss of shame as Vienna had done if they were not careful. Albert whispered this observation to Dinglebrush beside him, who seemed so flattered that his king spoke to him, that Albert believed he could see tears forming in Dinglebrush's eyes. Perhaps, insufferable and weak though the man was, this Dinglebrush was not so bad after all. At the very least, Dinglebrush did mean well, and it was a nice change of pace to think that Dinglebrush was also a very simple man to figure out. The same could not be said for Kaim Weizmann, who followed this Balkan investigation with a rousing 15-minute speech on Zionism and on the fate of the Jews across Europe and on the role which Jews played on all sides of the war and the justified case which Jews had for a homeland in Palestine. 
It was time, Weizmann said, to fulfill the promise of the Balfour Declaration and to grant the world's Jews what they were owed. Albert believed that he noted Lord Balfour shift uncomfortably in his seat. Had the British Foreign Secretary been warned against elaborating on his vague and open-ended declaration from 1917? Only time would tell exactly how interested Britain wished to be in this whole Israel business, but Albert was also aware of the fact that the only other person he had interrupted was Prince Sharoon of Siam, and it would probably look like something of a black mark on his character if the only person he had interrupted was Asian. Weizmann answered each question with precision and fluency, evidently aware of the many sides of his argument. Albert wasn't certain, but he thought that he noticed an expression of particular satisfaction plastered across Bonifacio Fidel's face. That smug Italian dolt was hiding something, or at least he was hiding more things than was usually obvious. The final speech of the evening was that of the Russian, Alexander Kerensky, who was tasked with explaining his very active diplomatic ventures of the past week. Albert wasn't completely filled in on the details, but he was informed as Kerensky spoke that the Russian had managed to pass through two distinct resolutions, each facilitating peace along two troubled borders. It was reported that Kerensky's energy and determination was unmatched by his colleagues and counterparts alike, but it was also said in the same breath that Kerensky's eagerness for action and results had made a bad impression on the two parties with whom he had spent the most time, those being the Germans and the Poles. It was significant, in fact, that the latter party had not seen fit to show their faces at this assembly. Albert wondered what it all meant. Wily and unscrupulous though they were, Albert did refuse to accept that the musical legend Paderewski would have countenanced the murder of that Canadian judge or the Hungarian president. Albert believed it was time to move past these incidents, and he was rather disappointed that the Polish had neglected to show their faces, as he felt confident that some common ground could be reached on such a momentous day as this. But the Poles were not the only ones to boycott the League's plenary conference. The aforementioned Serbs had neglected to attend as well, but so had the French, who were most conspicuous of all in their absence. Albert Clavel and René Massigli were both distinguished French statesmen in their own right, but the recent elevation of the German delegation to full plenipotentiary powers had rubbed them the wrong way, well, to say the least. Clemenceau had been horrified, and the shock had had a serious impact upon his nerves. How could the Germans be allowed to attend, as though part of any other Allied delegation? It was bad enough that Paul von Leto Vorbeck and Horton von Hotzendorf were allowed to reside in Paris and to scheme and work in the background, but to welcome them into the regular meetings of the Council of Ten, to require their agreement to all manner of aspects upon which the future peace of Europe rested, the peace which they broke, it had to be said, King Albert had been unable to fathom it himself, yet this was the situation they were all in. Maybe it wouldn't be all bad, though. Perhaps the German participation would mean a guaranteed peace settlement and the clarification of all outstanding issues in double-quick time. It surely wouldn't do to simply present the terms to the Germans in the 11th hour, although Albert did believe that an element of harshness was justified when dealing with these criminals. They had destroyed his kingdom after all, and even while the two German delegates had not been directly responsible, they served a regime which had been. It would take him some time to get over his anger and resentment at the elevation of the German delegation, 
But in the meantime, Albert did not blame the French for their actions, but since he had to be present for this auspicious day, he did wish that the French had managed to find a way to be present too. Some of the sting of the German elevation had been reduced by the recent signing of a very significant treaty, as Albert well knew, for he had poured over the two-page document countless times already. Extensive German reparations, the effective elimination of the German army as a threat to the peace, and above all, lots and lots of land ceded to the Allies. This was the Western Front peace treaty. The Tsarland and the Rhineland would go to France, Luxembourg would go to Belgium for a stated period, and Eupen and Malmedy would be taken from Germany and just straight up handed to Brussels. Some of these clauses had timestamps attached, or would be accompanied by plebiscites of the populace after a set number of years, but these technicalities could be overcome and absorbed once the locals realised how blessed they were to be free of the nightmare autocracy of Berlin. The tension, of course, was that the newly empowered German delegation would make the dismantling of this treaty its mission. Already the Tsar had come up for debate, and reportedly the Germans had only begun talking about the treaty for three minutes before crying foul. Albert wasn't surprised. He couldn't disagree with the fact that this was a punitive peace, akin to surrender on unconditional terms, and without much opportunities for solace or hope in the future. Maybe they would have to give ground on certain areas then, but King Albert was confident to the point of hysterical that under no circumstances would Belgium be left out in the cold. Germany was to be punished, and she would have to know that the war had been well and truly lost. In a stuffy, badly lit anteroom in the Quai d'Orsay, René Massigli and Albert Clavel were seated along with Georges Clemenceau. Germany was at the forefront of everyone's minds. Germany was to receive representation in the Council of Ten and become part of the Big Three. It was, so the justification went, similar to what France had done at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, but that viewpoint was far from useful. If you wanted to talk about fair, then it would have been entirely fair to have kept Germany low forever, considering what she had done. Clemenceau knew that France was broken, and he told these two French delegates so. She had scraped through the war with a Pyrrhic victory, thanks largely to her allies, but it would be touch and go whether such a miracle would be replicated again. The only chance was to prevent Germany from ever being in a position to launch the sequel, and this would be difficult to achieve indeed, so long as Germany now had permanent representation in the Council of Ten. On the table in front of them was the so-called Western Front Peace Treaty, a two-page document which had been signed mere days before Germany's accession to the Council of Ten. It promised France and Belgium the kinds of concessions they desperately needed, and it arranged a reworking of the border of the West, to France's satisfaction. This had been a relief for Clemenceau, who got his coveted Rhineland annexation and a Tsar occupation for 25 years. With heavy involvement in German industrial lands, it was doubtful that Germany would be able to muster the strength to fight a second war. Yet, her ascension to the Council of Ten a few days later threatened this whole treaty. It was inevitable that the Germans would seek to undo it, and that they would begin scheming against the French. The future seemed bleak, indeed, and it was now imperative that France tie itself firmly to potential allies, particularly in the East. Thus, Clemenceau and his two aides were awaiting the arrival of the four-man Polish delegation. Completely unaware of a very uncomfortable fact, the Germans had gotten to the Poles first.
Several hundred metres away, in a basement room of the Hotel Zachary, a curious meeting was taking place. Paul von Leto Vorbeck and Horten von Hotzendorf were joined by the Austrian Chancellor Karl Renner, and across the table from them sat Poland's finest, Paderewski, Josef Pilsudski, Pavel Lebova, and Bogna Kudzal. Pro-German sentiment had been rife among these Poles, a natural result of their anti-Russian sentiment. Inland, too, there was great potential for Polish-German cooperation, for Germany was apparently willing to agree to a striking deal. The Polish-German border treaty had only been a whisper in Paris, and it was shrouded in rumour throughout the halls of the Hotel Zachary. Perhaps if the delegates had taken Poland more seriously, they would have discovered the depths of her schemes. But due to the ostracising of her delegates following Bronski the absent-minded's rampage, it had become easier for Polish deals and delegates to stay under the radar. The end result was that here, just before they journeyed to meet the French, the Poles were finalising the details of a treaty which would settle the question of borders in the East. Strict secrecy had been observed throughout the meeting. The Poles had snuck in a back door, and a Polish soldier, disguised as a waiter, was even guarding the door into the room. Gentlemen, the matter is a simple one, boomed a very confident Paul von Leto Vorbeck. We consent to the partitioning of Prussia in return for Polish secret commitments to never attack Germany in the east. Horton von Hotzendorf could not believe what he was hearing. Here was von Leto Vorbeck, the Prussian Junker, consenting to partition his beloved Prussia. The world had gone mad, and yet over the last week something had changed within Paul von Leto Vorbeck. The man became somehow more opportunistic and less strict regarding his principles. It also helped that von Leto Vorbeck's estates were not included in the partition. Mr. Hotzendorf, you must think of the bigger picture, von Leto Vorbeck had said to his aide, before detailing the skeleton of a plan which would enable Germany to first cooperate with the Poles for the sake of France's destruction, and then turn east to rid the world of the Slav menace. Von Leto Vorbeck marvelled at how he had taken Alexander Kerensky along for this ride of deception. The announcement of his role as delegate with full plenary powers to act in the Council of Ten seemed to energise Paul von Leto Vorbeck, who hatched schemes on a regular basis and remained every bit the nightmare of France which Clemenceau so feared. Karl Renner would also be encouraged to bring Austria into this scheme, and in the months which followed, von Leto Vorbeck planned to petition heavily in the Council of Ten for the Anschluss to take place. There remained many elements of the Polish-German treaty to sort out. Indeed, it was more a gentleman's agreement at this point, and it was also subject to change. At times, Paul von Leto Vorbeck's mood fluctuated, and he became calmer, more forthright, even pleasant with the Poles. This was purely because of Paderewski's musical talents, von Leto Vorbeck said. The opportunity resided in the unitary aims of the Poles to extend their borders to the sea and to the north. Bogna Kutzal was especially vocal about Poland's need for Pomerania, but indicated he would settle for the restoration of East Prussia to Poland. There was an incredible atmosphere in this room. There was a real sense that a conspiracy was afoot, one which would seriously disadvantage France, but which would also give the two parties, Poland and Germany, everything they wanted and more. With the eastern flank happy, von Leto Vorbeck seemed to think that Germany would be able to focus all of its energies on combating French influence within the Council of Ten, 
and there was no limit to what she could achieve there if her statesmen worked together as one. Horton von Hotzendorf had been first in awe of, and then aghast at, the extent of Paul von Leto Vorbeck's plans. All that Horton von Hotzendorf wanted was a lasting peace. He hoped to be able to persuade Chancellor Renner that von Leto Vorbeck was something of a loose cannon. It had indeed been a week of firsts. Horton von Hotzendorf never imagined that the Allies would grant Germany full accredited representation in their Council of Ten, but he had also never imagined that he would work privately against von Leto Vorbeck. Better opportunities had once seemed to reside in Wilsonianism, in Horton's mind, but was that all kaput now, even with the League of Nations presented before the world? Hotzendorf had ensured that they hadn't stayed long in that plenary conference, he could feel the eyes of everyone there boring down upon him, and they had walked straight into this meeting with the Poles, knowing full well that France was also looking to meet with the Polish delegation. As a knock-on effect of all these schemes, the Poles had reached the summit of their powers in the conference, and with this wealth of influence and importance for the two mortal enemies of Germany and France, it was impossible to imagine Poland's delegates being ostracised from the Hotel Zachary for much longer. A great deal had happened over the previous week, to the extent that many delegates were taking some extended leave. With the passage of the League of Nations, after all, much of the urgency had been taken out of their missions. Yet there was still the question of peace with Germany, the creation of a final peace which would have to be hammered out, and that mission had been thrown completely into flux with these latest developments. Horton von Hotzendorf had been ingesting a great deal of the Hotel Zachary's coffee over the previous days, especially as the tension ramped up. He had declared himself off alcohol forever following the events of the Hotel Twomley tragedy, but he wasn't sure if the coffee made him jittery or kept him awake. Either way, he was conscious of the need for a break after an intense five-week period and five weeks of looking after Paul von Leto Vorbeck. Pavel Lubova eyed up Horton von Hotzendorf and lit himself another cigarette. He was confident that Paul von Leto Vorbeck could not be trusted, but he was also sure that in the last few weeks, Poland had been shafted. To recoup her losses and to build strategically important alliances, strange bedfellows would have to be sought out. Circumstances regarding the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement and the French hostility to Polish-Italian plans for the East forced Poland, Lebova believed, into siding with France's mortal enemy in this instance. It wasn't something that Lebova enjoyed doing, but considering France's increased supremacy following the signing of the Western Front Peace Treaty, there was great fear and apprehension among the Polish delegation that France wouldn't need Poland anymore, and it was therefore up to Poland to cover her own investments and guarantee her own future. Not for one moment did he trust the Germans, though, especially the fidgety Hotzendorf, but he accepted the troubles with France and rampant uncertainty over Russia in the East was forcing Poland to act in unique and unpredictable ways. There was likely to be further trouble on the horizon for Poland considering the knock-on effects of bringing Germany into the Council of Ten. Clemenceau, Wilson and Lloyd George ranged from apprehensive of this development to completely hostile, and Wilson was so angry and resentful at being usurped over the whole League debacle that he may well never show his face again. Along with these facts, Pavel Lebova was also confronted with daily rumours. The Americans planned to replace Wilson with Roosevelt, Newfoundland was due to exit the British Empire, Belgium and France intended to form a union, the Slovenian delegate was a Bolshevik spy, the Germans intended to resume the war within the year, 
or Lebova's personal favourite that Paul von Ledovorbeck despised Poles, and he was only going along with this deal as part of a wider plan to resurrect German fortunes, and after a certain point, he would turn against his Polish allies and destroy all in his path, before leading a coup himself against Friedrich Ebert's regime in Weimar. Nobody knew the truth, and rumours were as plentiful as the February rains which occasionally turned to sleet as they slapped against Lebova's dirty bedroom window. It was clear, though, at least, that a turning point of sorts had been arrived at. The past five weeks had already produced a plethora of drama, tragedy and excitement, and there was plenty of work still to be done. All right then, dear delegates, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed looking at some of the incredible consequences which have flowed from decisions made over the previous weeks, and I can promise you that plenty more consequences will be set to follow as our narrative progresses. Horton von Hotzendorf will be happy to learn that there will be no episode next week, as I will be away. Speaking of being away, Woodrow Wilson is on his way home to the United States at this moment, which affords those in Paris a tremendous opportunity as he works to get the Alternative League of Nations Treaty approved by Congress. After feeling immensely insulted by his exclusion from the whole process, Wilson has arguably never been more vulnerable. Thus, for that numerous American delegation, I would say to you all, it's decision time. But it's also decision time for everyone else, because this weekly challenge vote, which will be sent out to all of you, and which won't be addressed until episode 6 on the 2nd of March, poses the following scenario. Here it is. Woodrow Wilson is returning home to the United States to reluctantly present the League of Nations to Congress. He stands a better chance of success than he did in the real historical timeline, thanks to his removal from the process, which makes the idea appear somewhat less partisan. However, this is offset by the President's hurt feelings and resulting lack of enthusiasm for something which he did not have a key role in creating, as he had imagined he would. So it's now up to you what happens next. Do you permit history? Do you commend Wilson for his efforts and praise his selflessness? Do you criticise his record? Do you attempt to accompany him to the United States in a bid to persuade Congress with some international flavour? Or, most interestingly, do you seize the opportunity presented by President Wilson's absence to try and replace him as head of the American delegation with Teddy Roosevelt? Interesting. Much like last week's vote, this provides us with an opportunity to make an incredible difference to the timeline. So make sure you get out there and vote by the 1st of March, 9am GMT. If you've been listening and you think you'd like to have a role in shaping how things progress here in the delegation game, then you can, of course. You know where to go by now. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Or for more information, check out wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game. Click on the link in the description below, guys. It's all there. You know by now what to do. A huge thanks to everyone who's participated this week. And a huge thanks to you all again for allowing me to have next week off. I certainly do need it, trust me. Until next time then, my name is Zach and this has been the fifth episode of The Delegation Game. You're a lovely history friend, or maybe a delegate, and I'm the Delegation Master. So thanks for listening and playing, and I'll see you all at the Hotel Zachary on the 2nd of March.
by the third time this happened, ripples of laughter could be heard, and when Dinglebert took that occasion to break wind, these giggles caused the room to nearly erupt. <laughs> oh boy, you're 27 and farts still make you laugh, seriously. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.